listening to the City World Radio Network, high-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world, www.cityworldradio.com. Good afternoon. Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElvenny. Join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events. Okay, welcome to Intelligent Talk. The website is intelligenttalk.com. We're here to discuss an interesting subject. Um, The book is called Every Second Counts. And it's about the first heart transplant, which most people would have thought would have occurred in Europe or the United States, but did not. It actually occurred in South Africa in 1967 with a doctor named Dr. Christian Barnard. And we have here an author who has written really a definitive book on the subject. His name is Donald McRae. Mr. McRae, thank you for coming on the program today. Thank you so much for having me on. So if I could just start then, um, your book uh, sort of begins in 1958, where there's um, with a team of doctors competing. There's Dr. Barnard, there's Shumway Lauer, who's sort of working as a team, and there's a person who many people think was really was key, the first um, pacemaker, Dr. Kantowitz. And the race begins in 1958 uh, with Dr. Shumway in San Francisco and involves a dog, dog heart. Could you please um, start there, start the story with that and explain that? Yeah, it's quite a fascinating tale because in 1958, uh, the idea of transplanting a human heart was so outlandish that I don't think any of these doctors or anyone else was actually contemplating it as being possible. But Shumway and Lauer were young doctors. They were audacious, just starting out as surgeons. They didn't have a lot of work at that time. So in their spare time, they would go down into a dingy lab in San Francisco, and they started to kick about some fun ideas, as they like to say in their sort of laconic way. And one of their fun ideas was dealing in hypothermia, which is cold. And they decided that to attempt to see if they could stop a heart in a dog and see if they could freeze that heart um, in cold saline. And then after a certain time, they were thinking 15 or 20 minutes, and the ideal was to go for an hour. After an hour, would they be able to start the heart again? This was bold and audacious. And they did attempt it, and they were absolutely stunned in the summer of 58 when they stopped the dog's heart for 60 minutes, and then got it back working again and the dog was licking their hands and being a typical dog and they just suddenly thought we can use this technique to think about transplantation. Okay and your book also sort of involves a history in a way of transplants as well. I think you say the first successful kidney transplant was in I think 1950? Yeah I think it was then yes. And how did, could you tell, tell me how the knowledge of like the kidney transplant help to sort of guide the way for the heart transplant? What, what similarities have come to mind? Well, the, the kidney, um, as the surgeons themselves told me, was a much more technically challenging um, up to do. Um, but it, it was successful, but it was always quite difficult because the body would tend to attack the new donor, donor kidney. So Shumway and Lauer were aware that 
once the op had been completed, the kidney transplantation had showed that there was always going to be a minefield of difficulties in stopping the body attacking this new organ that was keeping it alive. But they, got a, they were heartened by the fact that, excuse the cliche, heartened, I didn't mean <laughs> that, but um, they were just emboldened by the fact that um, technically it is much simpler to transplant a heart than a kidney. Um, so they began to work methodically towards this objective, but they were not so concerned with being the first because no one else was actually thinking about, thinking about transplanting a heart. They were scientific men, and they decided they're going to work slowly, even if it took 10, 20 years. Once they had got to the point where they felt they would help a body accept a new donor heart, that would be the time to go. But of course, other surgeons, Cantruitz in New York, and later Barnard in South Africa, they wanted to push ahead much more quickly. Um, so we had this fascinating, not a battle, but uh, all these, these four surgeons were all attempting, in a way, to be the first. Yes, you mentioned Dr. Kantowitz, one of the um, early pioneers of the pacemaker. Could you explain briefly his contribution to this? Yes, um, he'd done a lot of work in um, pacemakers, and he was a highly intelligent man. I met him in his sort of mid-80s, and even then, ideas just poured out of him. And he was dynamic. He was based in Brooklyn at Maimonides Hospital. And he was fascinated to learn in, in sort of the early 60s what Shumway and Lauer were doing. And he had quite a cosmopolitan team um, with him in Maimonides. Uh, there were surgeons from Japan, South Africa, England. And these young surgeons together in New York suddenly thought, Shumway and Lauer have given us an opportunity to do something. Let's see if we can start... Um, working in transplanting dog hearts. And Shumway and Lauer had also made a significant achievement. They had done an actual transplant from one dog to the other in sort of December the 31st, 1959. And that made the front page of the New York Times. It was a huge deal. The dog did not last for more than I think about five or six days because the body immediately started attacking the donor heart. But again, Shumway and Lauer had given the key to say that this was possible. Kantowitz was a bold man, and he thought, well, technically, it's a simple uh, operation to do. And he, he thought, I'm going to push harder and harder. And he began to do enormous work in transplanting dog hearts in the lab. And he was quite successful. Some of his dogs were living for many months. And jumping ahead, in, in 1966, um, on an early uh, morning in, in June, about sort of 1 o'clock in the morning, in the surgical theater, Kantrowitz was on the cusp of immortality. He was about to transplant the first human heart. This is now 18 months before it was actually done in South Africa. And Kantrowitz had two babies. One, the, the donor baby, was an anencephalic um, patient, which means that uh, the body is effectively born without a brain. Um, uh, that's a simplistic term, but um, explanation, but that's, uh, the body is brain dead. But the heart in this donor baby, who's only a few days old, looked good. And another baby was dying with congenital heart defects and only had days to live. 
So Cantor had said, now is the time. I've spent so long in the labs working on dogs. You've done a lot of work on puppies. So he knew he could deal with a minuscule heart. And he was just about to do it when two of the senior members of his surgical team actually intervened and said, no, you cannot play God. You cannot do this. And so they had this existential debate over these two babies' bodies, both still alive, the anencephalic baby, of course, with no consciousness, but the, the baby needing a new heart dying, and so Kentwitz knew he just had days to save this baby. And the two older men kept saying to him, look, the baby is perfect, um, you know, beyond if you, they covered the anencephalic baby's head with a towel, so we just had the perfect torso, and they're saying, you cannot, touch this baby until it actually dies, then you can take the heart. Kantrowitz would tear off the towel and he would make them look into the shattered face and shattered head of the baby who'd been born and encephalic. And he would say, look, there's no consciousness there. So it was this whole debate, what defines death? For Kantrowitz, it was the mind consciousness which makes us human. The older men were saying, no, it is the heartbeat that defines life. So this was a huge debate, but in the end, Kantrowitz was forced to step down. He couldn't do the transplant that night. Both babies died so, Don, in I, a day. Can I just summarize? So Kantrowitz pulled ahead of Shumway then, and he would have been the first person to do it if but for that ethical debate. Is that fair to say? Yes. And that was not known. Um, I only learnt about it um, sort of in the early 2000s. Um, it was known within surgical circles, but publicly, publicly no one knew about this. And for me, this was a momentous thing that 18 months before Chris Barnard, the South African, um, did the first transplant, Kentrowitz was so close to doing it. Yes, it's... Let me just turn to Dr. Barnard, because obviously he is a person who, who was the first, and I just want to briefly discuss some of his background, because you mentioned he was raised, obviously, in South Africa. I believe his father was a Methodist minister to primarily a black congregation. Is that right? Um, well, it was mainly, uh, mainly white people. They lived in an Afrikaans, um, which was like a far, farm sort of community. Um, but they were good people, and sometimes... Um, uh, black people were allowed into the church, but on the whole, he was talking to, um, you know, white people in his church. Was he considered a bit of an outsider in South Africa? I mean, having some blacks in the church, was he considered any kind of a rebel, his father? Or? Um, I don't I don't think hugely so. They were quite a conservative family at the same time. Look, they had some compassion, and so I think occasionally a black person could come into the church, but they weren't doing anything particularly to help black people. Okay. And Chris Barnard's own political views were definitely conservative. He, though, was highly intelligent, went to the University of Cape Town, showed a lot of flair, a lot of imagination, and he was lucky enough to get a scholarship to go study in Minnesota at the University of Minnesota. And they had a wonderful um, sort of heart team there who were doing such cutting-edge work. Funny enough, Norm Shumway was also studying at the same time. So Shumway and Barnard were, were sort of classmates and didn't get on because Shumway was um, quite an urbane, sophisticated, witty man. 
Barnard was definitely an outsider. He had a thick South African accent in Africana, a conservative man. He was intense, not a lot of humor to him, especially in those days. And they clashed. And it's ironic that the two of them, you know, 15 years down the line were battling to be the first. But Barnard wasn't particularly um, compelled by transplantation. He was doing a lot of other significant and innovative work in the heart and other parts of the body. But um, for him, a big turning point came in 1966. He went to Virginia um, to meet with David Hume, who was the pioneer who had done so much work on the first uh, kidney transplants. And Barnard was thinking about doing the first kidney transplant in Africa. So he went to meet Hume and spent a couple of weeks with, with Hume in Virginia. While he was there, his, uh, one of his uh, former um, members of his surgical team, the perfusionist, a guy called Carl Hurston, was actually working in, in Virginia. And he said to Chris Barnard, Chris, you must go into Dick Lauer's lab. They're transplanting dog hearts. Barnard said, what? So he said, come, we'll go see. Dick said, yeah, sure. He was an open man, Dick Lauer. And this he'd now left Shumway, and he was in, in Virginia. And Dick Lauer, using the same techniques that he and Shumway had developed in San Francisco, was also coming close to doing the first um, human heart transplant. So Barnard sat one afternoon in Virginia and watched Lauer move a heart from one dog into another. And he said, my God, is that all it is? And Lauer said, yes, technically it's such a simple thing to do. So Barnard went out and he said to uh, Carl, his former perfusionist from Cape Town, wow, that's so easy, I'm gonna go out and do it. Okay, so Carl said, but, yeah, okay. So that, I, I, so that really, just I wanna go back to one thing you said about uh, Minnesota. I, I think you say in the book, in the 50s, there were only two hospitals in the US doing open heart surgery and they were both in Minnesota. Um, is that right? Uh, to be honest, it's such a long time, you know, many years since I did the book. Um, okay. I, 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 if it says that in the book, then I'm sure that's the case. Think, and I, I, I can't comment that. I remember when um, my grandfather was sick, he went to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, and I visited him there. And I remember, you know, it was amazing to me that such a top-rate facility existed in such a desolate area. And you, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was a guy, John Kirkland, I think, at Mayo, who was doing wonderful work. And yeah, it, I don't know how it worked, but Minnesota was, was sort of the um, heartland, to use another uh, cliche of the heart. Do there. you know why that was? Why Minnesota was there? I, I don't. Beyond, I think, uh, once you get some fertile, highly imaginative minds working in one place, other people are pulled towards that place. And they just had such a high reputation okay. that um, people just wanted to learn from them. I want to I want to just talk briefly about Barnard's personality and then obviously go back to his training and, and obviously the Operation 67. But you say that Barnard is kind of a morally ambiguous person. Obviously, he was his personal life was kind of a mess. He was having a bunch of affairs. He didn't really seem to seem oblivious to like apartheid around him. Around Could you just discuss briefly him as a person, Barnard? Yes, he was a complicated man. Um, he wasn't, as a surgeon, um, he wasn't particularly good. He would get quite emotional. He would shout at his staff in the midst of an operation. Um, but as a doctor, once the, the, the surgical mask was taken off, he was highly intuitive 
and you could pick out little things which why the patient wasn't wasn't doing so well. So there was this sort of ambivalence in him as a doctor and a surgeon, and similarly as a person, he could be hugely compassionate, but he was ambitious, and he was just pushing, pushing, pushing to do something that would make his name. And transplantation was the golden key for him to make him, as it turned out, the most famous man in the world for a while. And when he got to that point, he certainly took advantage and, yeah, he had lots of affairs and he lived the high life. Could you discuss also one of the reasons, am I correct, that South Africa certified death differently than the U.S.? South Africa, you had to have two doctors certifying death? Um, yes, and South Africa, you know, was at the height of apartheid. So the, the focus of the, the government and the, and the lawmakers was basically to ensure white power was stayed in, intact. So things like medical legislation were almost just shunted to one side. And so in South Africa, um, it was much looser, and they could define death. Uh, they could have the idea of brain death that... Um, you could take the donor heart from a patient who'd been in a car accident who was brain dead. In the U.S., it was much more complicated because in the U.S., the definition of, of life um, was the heartbeat. If the heartbeat stopped, people would say, well, that person is now dead, which, of course, we can all understand that. But what the surgeons all felt is that actually the, the heart was just a pump. But what defines humanity is consciousness, is the brain. And if the brain is dead, the person is dead. And so Barnard was fortunate in the sense that in South Africa, medical legislation was fairly loose. He just needed a couple of doctors and his immediate boss to say, okay, you can take the heart of a brain-dead patient. In the States, they couldn't do that. So Barnard had a huge advantage in being okay. the first in that sense. Now, and I'd like to go to the heart of the book, obviously, the, 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 the operation itself in 67. And you were saying earlier that Barnard had... Where he'd been in Virginia in, did you say, 66, right before this? In 66, yeah. Right. And sort of, and just, just very succinctly, what did he learn in Virginia in 66 that allowed him to do it in 67? What was the key just thing? Just that it was technically a simple um, procedure um, that just gave him such confidence. He said, I'm going to do some transplants in dogs. He did about, okay. um, it's in the book, I'm not sure of the exact figures, but I think he did about 40 or 50. And his dogs did not live for more than a few days. But he still just thought, I'm going to go ahead and do it. So this was the kind of man he was, where Shumway and Lauer were much more methodical and thought, well, uh, our dogs need to be living for a year before we can start thinking about doing this in a okay. human being. Okay, so now we're in, in 67. Um, we're getting we're, uh, doing the operation. They take a female heart and they implant it in a, in a man. Is, is that correct? Yes. Okay. Could you just describe briefly? I mean, what the problem? I mean, at one point they were going to. One of the subjects was going to be um, black, right? And didn't Barnard say no? We we can't do that. It has to be. Um, yeah. About a, a, the, the first operation happened in early December '67, but a couple of weeks before that, in South Africa, um, they had a donor patient who, in South African terminology, was coloured, which is a means a mixed race person. Um, Barnard was set to do it. He didn't think anything of the political consequences, but his boss, the chief cardiologist, said, no, you cannot do it because the world will go crazy if you're taking the heart of a black person and putting it in the, heart, in the body of a white person. It'll look so bad. So Barnard was blocked there. Okay. But, um, yeah, he was fortunate. A few weeks later, um, a, a young woman, white woman, was in a car accident. She was 
brain dead, the heart was still beating, and he was given permission to take her heart and put it in the body of an older white man who survived for about 17 days. Could you just briefly describe, I mean, just in very basic terms, what the operation was and, and how they, I mean, the, the woman's heart was substantially smaller than the man's, right? But that, and they, they weren't certain if it was going to work, but it ended up working fine? Yeah, I think for Barnard said it was, a, for him, such an existential moment because they opened the chest of the patient, the man who was going to get the new heart, and his heart had, was huge. It looked like it belonged to a whale. Right. They then opened the chest of the, of the young woman whose heart they were going to take, and that heart was much smaller. So they weren't sure if it was going to be able to support this large male body, but okay. they just moved ahead. And Barnard said, because basically once you take the heart out of the recipient, it's, the body's been kept alive by a heart-lung machine. But Barnard took out the heart, and he said it was unbelievable. He looked into this empty chest cavity. This person is still alive, kept alive by the machine, but there's no heart. Okay. And he paused for a few seconds and thought, oh, my God, what am I doing? But then he took the donor heart of the woman, and they put it into the um, chest of the man, stitched it up. Um, it was complicated things they had to do in terms of shocking it and warming the heart. But after whatever it was, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, the heart began to pump. And that was a wonderful moment for them, that life was now being given from a dead woman to um, a, a living man. And that heart, it, it lasted quite some time, didn't it, in this, in this man? Yeah, it lasted for about 17 days. And when you as I said earlier, his dogs were, were not surviving for more than a couple of days. This shows that Barnard, for all his flaws um, and his excitement and agitation in the surgical theater, he was quite gifted. And he did keep his first patient alive for 17 days. And the doctors who followed him soon afterwards, their patients did, last, did not last for more than a couple of days, sometimes even only hours. Why do you think that was? I mean, I know you write in the book that Barnard stays up and almost becomes like a robot. He avoids food and eating. and just focuses solely on the patient. Was it just his care that caused that? Yeah, well, that's what I said. He's such an ambivalent man that he was um, so ambitious and merciless towards other people. But he was compassionate towards his patients and also had this intuitive ability to... Obviously, this is in the 60s, so they didn't have the kind of um, technology that surgeons have or doctors have today. But just with the naked eye, he would look at a patient and think, there's something up with this guy's kidney. It's battling to support the new heart. And he would then focus on helping the kidney. Um, so he had some special talents. There's no doubt about that. Were there any, um, I just remind do you remember if there were any anti-rejection drugs at this time were, were used or... Um, yes, they were, but they were in their infancy, and so um, they weren't working particularly well. And it was only, I mean, it got to the point where they basically said no more heart, tra heart transplants are allowed in the world um, because the patients were just dying so quickly. And it was then when Shumway and Lauer, again, the two guys who'd started the whole thing in the, in the dog lab in 1958, they did all the hard work in the 1970s working out how they could help the body um, deal with a new donor heart and stop the body attacking the donor heart. But it, it was a long battle. So Barnard won the war. He was the first. Um, uh, 
uh, well, he, they, well, he won the battle, but the p- people who won the war were Shumway and Lawa because they were the two guys who actually enabled transportation to become the successful operation that it is today. Could you explain just for people that weren't around in 1967 what it was like and the kind of fame that Barnard had and maybe how that changed him as a person? Yeah, well, yeah, I was only six years old in 67, so I was, for me as a South African, it had a huge impact on this, me as a tiny little boy. I suddenly knew the world was agog with what this man had done. And I think you've got to put it in context in the 60s. I guess the main objective of, of many uh, of the U.S. and the Soviet Union had been to put a man on the moon. And that sort of was a compelling race to see who could be first. But the first human heart transplant was not far behind that because the human heart is such an evocative organ. We talk about a heart breaking when we're falling in and out of love, our heart sings. So people just could understand that the heart was this wonderful organ that means so much. And so the, when the first transplant happened, Barnard was just a huge figure of fascination. He was immediately flown to the U.S. to do wall-to-wall television shows. Um, he was taken to the White House to meet the President, Johnson, and he met the Pope. Movie stars wanted to meet him. He was just this iconic figure. He was a cover of Time magazine. And for him, as a young farm boy from the Afrikaans heartlands of South Africa, to suddenly be in Washington, D.C., and Los Angeles, and New York, and London, and being fated, it just totally went to his head. Okay. Let's just speak about the, the post-67 Barnard. And You spoke with, with Barnard's brother, I believe. Is that right? Yes. He was part of the, the team that had done the first heart transplant. And also his, his daughter, um, who was an invaluable witness, um, loved her father, but was also able to articulate um, some of his flaws. And, um, you know, she saw how her mother had suffered because Chris left his wife and got divorced soon after his um, surgical fame exploded. And he was immediately engaged to a 19-year-old model and at the same time having affairs with, with lots of movie stars. So he just, he, you know, he was ambitious in medical terms, but once he made it, he actually became obsessed with his fame and, and the high life and unfortunately squandered his talents. Right, that's what I was just going to say. He never really achieved much after that, never anything like what he well, had before. Well, he did a little bit. I mean, he did the fourth heart transplant. Um, he was a patient called Philip Lyberg, who, and, and this was in early 68. And that patient lived for 18 months. Um, and, he, and about his fourth or fifth transplant, the patient lived for years. So he had success. But instead of staying in the theater and working, he was too busy going and saying, oh, I'm off to Monaco or I'm off to L.A. He just was seduced totally by fame and glamour. And the surgical team back home in Cape Town were thinking, gosh, we're making such headway. We should keep going. But he was seduced by, you know, the, the, the high life, unfortunately. Also, um, one of the things that uh, you mentioned uh, arthritis, you mentioned that in the book that I wonder if that was at all psychosomatic, or was it really a serious condition that prevented him from working? No, it, it was even as a young man, he suffered, and his hands, you can sometimes see photos, his hands are gnarled and twisted, and he had a lot of pain. Um, so again, 
you know, even though I'm, my own sort of support is with the U.S. surgeons who did all the hard work and they lost the opportunity to be the first, and Barnard's politics didn't coincide with, with what my beliefs are, but at the same time, you have to say he overcame enormous odds, and one of that was the, the fact that, yes, his hands were not working so well and he suffered a lot of pain. Okay. Um, I think I mentioned to you in an email earlier, too, I had read that Peter Sellers, the actor who was in the Pink Panther movies, was planning to get an operation by Barnard, and obviously Sellers died in 1980 before he could do that. Did you ever hear anything about that between the Barnard-Sellers friendship? I had I'd had heard about it, and um, yes, it tallied with the fact that Barnard, again, Peter Sellers was a you know, famous actor, so Barnard was happy to go see him, and he knew he'd been in the newspapers. Um, so yeah, that was typical of Barnard, that he was, you know, his clientele changed, and, the, and they were famous people he was more keen to talk to, perhaps. And just in summing up, uh, then, if we in the life of uh, Dr. Barnard, and obviously having completed this operation, is it fair to say that people like Barnard push the envelope? They may be difficult people, as sort of people like Steve Jobs were. They may be um, hard to get along with, but they sort of push the envelope of human advancement. And that, in that sense, they are valuable people to have. Definitely. Um, the difficulty with this sort of particular case is that they were, he was only one of four who were all so close. The other surgeons, I think, had done much more work, and they were all on the cusp of doing it. I mean, they all were within hours of being the first. But Barnard, yes, he was the one who was the most audacious and pushed the envelope quicker than any of them. And Shumway, who I think most people feel should have been the first, he found this enormously difficult that Barnard had beaten him. But when I met Shumway close to his death, and Shumway had been living for 40 years with being the second or the third, well, he was the third to do it. And he said it's painful because they all forget the guy who was second or third. It's always about the guy who was first. And he didn't like Barnard. He hadn't liked them when they were students together in Minnesota. He hated his style, his obsession with fame. But he did say to me, he said, it's hard for me to admit this, but Barnard did a huge thing for the benefit of all of us surgeons and for humanity. He pushed the envelope when it came to the definition of death. U.S. legislation was still banging away that the heartbeat defined life. Barnard was the one who said, no, life and death is defined by consciousness or the absence of consciousness. So Shumway, you know, he played this huge, paid this huge um, plaudit to Barnard, which I thought was magnanimous of him. That's, that's fascinating. How, how, how long before you wrote the book did you meet Shumway? Was that like 2001 or so, or 99? <laughs> Uh, the book came out in 2006, so I was sort of talking to Shumway sort of uh, about 2004 to 2005. He was a man, it was hard to get access to him because he was a private individual and this had hurt him hugely. He didn't want to talk about it. Okay. But Dick Lauer and I got on fantastically well and Dick knew I, no one else had attempted to tell the story. And Dick said to Shumway, you've got to meet Don. And although he's a South African, he's actually open to what we were doing. And then when I met Shumway, he was a wonderfully warm and expensive person to, to talk to. And I was lucky enough to be with him in Stanford to see what the work being done in Stanford in the early 2000s was. And it was all built on Norm Shumway's vision. And I think at the end, he had some peace because he knew that he had actually 
you know, as I said, he'd won the war, right. even though Barnard won the, won the famous battle. Yeah, it's kind of like the second person landing on the moon. No one really knows who the second person is. We all know exactly. Neil Armstrong. And, and just, just to sum up then, Barney, would you say that would you say he had the greater will or determination, not necessarily the better better surgeon or a better doctor, but just he had the, the most drive of the four? Would that be a fair to say? Well, no, because I think they all were absolutely compelled and worked so hard. It was just a sort of a more personality difference. Shumway and Lara were scientists. They thought, let's be methodical. Let's work slowly. Let's make sure we do it as well as we can. They didn't think about being the first. But Barnard thought first, I'm going to be the guy to do it. The science uh, was sort of to the side. But then, as I said earlier, the weird thing is that actually he was more successful. His patients lasted longer. So it's, it's quite a uh, multi-layered story. And, you know, I ended up, I admired all four of them hugely. Do you think fame was in the back of his head when he was doing that operation in 67? Was he thinking about going to Monaco and hanging out? No, I don't think so. Um, I think he was taken aback by how his life would change. I think he knew that in surgical circles it would be a huge milestone and you would get a lot of accolades for being the first. But I don't think anyone expected it would be such huge news. So he was taken aback and just excited by what, how his life had changed. Okay. And obviously the, the legacy of those operations, I think there's something like, I read 2,500 a year now done, I, maybe more than that, but that's the number that I, that I saw. Um, but it's, I think that would be almost perhaps just in the States, I think. I think they were, uh, certainly I think maybe 6,000 or so globally. Okay. Um, uh, that's just a figure that stays in my head. I would have to check that. But it, it's become a fairly... You know, people are used to the idea of, of transplantation of the heart. Um, whereas in the 1960s, it was the Wild West. People just could not believe it was possible to do. Whereas now if we hear that a colleague or a family member needs a heart transplant, it's a huge um, deal, of course. But we all can go into that thinking, well, there's a good chance that this loved person can maybe have another 5, 10, 15, 20 years of, of good life. And that, again, is all down to those early pioneers, I think. Well, just one final question before I wrap this up. But um, a lot of animals were used in these experiments, dogs and chimpanzees, et cetera. Do you think there's anything to, to discuss the morality of that? I mean, is it just necessary? Number two, would that be, could that same climate allow that to occur today, do you think? Or was there any difference in the 60s versus the No, I think you know, things have changed and we'd be, people would be much more skeptical about um, dogs being used in the lab and, and cats. Um, but... You know, the, the surgeons themselves uh, asked this question and, and they sort of said, look, we were animal lovers and we got on, you know, we cared for these animals, but they said human life was more important to us than the lives of, of a cat or a dog. But, um, yes, there were some ethical differences in their outlook to perhaps what we would feel ourselves today, and I don't think it could be done in the same okay. way in 2018. May I ask you, are you writing, are you working on any, any books now, any new books? Uh, yes, I've just uh, finished a book, a uh, completely different subject. It's set in Belfast in Northern Ireland in the 1970s and 80s at the height of the troubles between the Catholics and the Protestants. So couldn't be more different, um, but it's about people and humanity and um, some good people and not good people, and um, I'm enjoying working on that. 
Wonderful. And are you at the Guardian newspaper too? Is that right? Did I read that? Yes, I write a sports interview, uh, which I do once a week. And um, I was actually just starting to do that when I began to work on this book. And the surgeons loved it because I said, oh, I was hopeless at science at school. Now, nothing about biology. Do you mind talking to me? And they just loved talking to me because they would explain to me the basics. And they knew I was actually more concerned about the human side of their work. And I, could, I have to say they couldn't have been more supportive of me. And they also understood, in a way, it became a bit like a sporting event because they all were vying with each other to be the first. Very well. Well, Mr. McRae, thank you so much for your time. The book was Every Second Counts. This is IntelligentTalk.com, and thank you again for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye nation's armed forces and you're looking for a way to continue serving your fellow veterans in your community then join amvets each year amvets members volunteer millions of hours at va health care facilities from coast to coast helping to improve the lives of their fellow veterans through the va voluntary services program amvets posts and departments also participate in a wide variety of community service projects ranging from americanism in our schools to supporting the special olympics and boy scouts of america if you no longer wear the uniform today you can still serve through the amvets by joining today at amvets.org Hi, I'm Janice Ian. Do you remember how excited you were at the start of summer every year and how the summer just started to drag on after a few months and you couldn't wait to get back to school, see your old friends, make new friends, get new books and a new locker and a clean slate? Well, you should have been excited about music class, too, because that was a special room where you went to sing, perform with your friends, and learn all kinds of interesting stuff about great composers, instruments, different kinds of music and songs. We remember our music teachers because they were so passionate about helping us learn to love music. They helped to spark a love for listening to notes and voices and rhythms that continues to enrich our lives even today. I bet your kids feel the same way about music class. Ask them and make sure they get involved with music in school and in their lives. A PSA brought to you by MENC, the National Association for Music Education, and the National Anthem Project, the campaign to restore America's voice through music education. Music, part of a sound education. Sparky the Fire Dog here. Protect your family from fire. Make sure your home has smoke alarms in every bedroom, outside your sleeping areas, and on every level of your home, even your basement. For games and activities, go to sparky.org. We want to keep you, your family, and your community safer from fire. 